Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 14. I'm going to read this chapter from Genesis, Genesis chapter 14. Apparently, when I wrote this order of worship a few weeks ago, I was in a, just read the whole chapter mood. We read all of Isaiah 32. We're going to read all of Genesis 14. We won't read all of Hebrews 7. But first, Genesis chapter 14, this will provide a little context for our sermon passage, which is in Hebrews chapter 7. Genesis chapter 14, hear now the word of the Lord. And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Shertelamar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemebar, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these joined together in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Shedeleomar, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Shedeleomar and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Tarnaim, and the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Sheveth Kiriathaim, and the Horites in the mountain of Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazazon Tamar. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admon, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Sidon. Again, Shertelamar, king of Elam, Tidal, king of nations, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidon was full of asphalt pits, and the king of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went away. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods, and departed. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Anar, and they were allies with Abram. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shiva, that is, the king's valley, after he returned from the defeat of Shertelamar and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. 
And he gave him a tithe of all. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread of a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten. And the portion of the men who went with me, Maner, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. Amen. Ordinarily, this is where I take a few minutes explaining the passage to you. But I'm actually going to explain the passage to you at some length out of Hebrews 7. So let's just go over there. Hebrews chapter 7 is our sermon text this morning. Hebrews chapter 7. And I'll be looking at verses 1 through 10. Hebrews chapter 7, 1 through 10. The anonymous author of this book, most often attributing authorship to the Holy Spirit, is impressing upon his hearers the importance of staying with Jesus and not going back to the Old Testament way. Because to return to the angels, to return to Moses... To return to the Levitical priesthood would be to give up that which eclipsed all those. That which surpassed and fulfilled all those. Namely, Jesus. He continues this argument here in Hebrews chapter 7 by introducing us to a minor figure in the book of Genesis. Who becomes a really major figure in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7 verses 1 through 10. Hear now the word of the Lord. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now, consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils, and indeed those who are the sons of Abraham, the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law. That is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. For he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witness that he lives. Even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Amen. And amen. 
Once, my childhood dog, our farm dog, Tippy, ate something that did not agree with her. And I saw her there for about a minute, coughing and choking and huffing and finally depositing most of the contents of her stomach on the ground. And I looked at it like a little boy and went, oh, that's so gross. And my dad, in his laconic way, said, that's just how dogs clear out their problems. And so we moved away and went on working on some other things. And about an hour later, I came back. And there wasn't a sign of anything there. And I said, Dad, where did it all go? And my dad, in his classic laconic way, said, back inside a tippy. And I went, oh, that's way worse. That is so gross. And Solomon says in Proverbs 26 that that is exactly what we are like every time we go back to our sin and our folly. The just as a dog returns to its vomit, so the fool returns to his folly. There's this temptation in the world to come to these pews and to hear the gospel and then to return to the vomit. There is a temptation to sit with the saints and to hear the the gospel of God, the grace of Jesus Christ freely offered, and then to go to the office and to return to the vomit. And to live as if the gospel belonged in this room, but not that one. To live as if grace were true here, but not at home. And we have a warning from the Holy Spirit this morning in Hebrews chapter 7. That Jesus is king and priest forever. Jesus is priest and king forever. He is alone our Savior. And so let us worship in Him. Let us live in Him. Let us work in Him. Let us love in Him. Let us find Him the central feature of our faith. Look at these verses with me this morning. Notice that at last, having been hinted at, having been suggested, we finally meet the man, Melchizedek. The author, the Holy Spirit, has for a few chapters now said, Jesus is a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, quoting from Psalm 110. But at no point has he ever bothered to tell us who this Melchizedek is. And now we know. Here we at last are taught this is who Melchizedek is. He points us back to the story I just read you in Genesis 14. That Melchizedek, being the king of Salem, a priest of the Most High God, met Abraham who was returning from the slaughter of the kings. He blessed Abraham and he received from Abraham a tenth part of all he had. This, in verses 1 and 2, is an excellent little summary of that story. But to grasp the significance of that summary, we have to step back into the story for just a moment. And remember, Sherdaleamar is not only one of the coolest names in the entire Old Testament, and the way it just rolls off your tongue once you know how to say it, and I'm saying it wrong, aren't I? But Sherdaleamar was a man of great imperial ambition. He had gathered kings to his loyalty and his allegiance. 
And he had assembled a massive army that marched across Mesopotamia so that when all the kings around Sodom and Gomorrah pitted their strength, pun intended, against him at the asphalt pits, Sherdalemar won. He is an emperor. He is a world-dominating king. He is a man of great imperial intention, and he has fulfilled all his life's ambition. He is the top. This is what we would call World War I or World War I half. It is the ancient experience of all the world falling under one great man. Except Cher de Lemar made one small mistake. In sweeping up all the kingdoms of the ancient Near East under his great imperial rule, he happened to snatch up this one little guy from the city of Sodom, a guy named Lot. Which you would actually forgive Cher de Lemar for thinking that's a fairly insignificant thing. Grabbing this stranger out of the city of Sodom doesn't seem like a big deal. Until you realize that that's Abram's nephew. Until you realize that Abram is not a man to be messed with. He pulls 318 men together, which I'm guessing is not an overwhelmingly large army for the ancient Near East. Marches them all day and all night as far as Dan, the northern end of the land of Canaan. Attacks at night, which in a land of swords and arrows and sticks and slings and rocks, is a really bad battle plan. And completely annihilates this guy who just conquered the world. And chases his massive world-dominating army all the way back to north of Damascus. That's a couple days hike. Abraham didn't just beat him up once. He chased him for a week and pulverized him into dust. On his way back home, having amassed all the spoils of Sherdo Leomar, what do you think he had in terms of like plunder and hoard? Abraham is dragging home essentially all the wealth of the ancient Near East having destroyed the first great empire of the ancient Near East. And he meets Melchizedek and says, here, you can have a tenth of it. And he kneels down before Melchizedek, and Melchizedek blesses him. This is not the behavior of a man who just conquered the world, as Abraham did. This is the behavior of a man who takes all the world's wealth all the world's power, holds it in his hand and says, I'd rather worship Jesus. And kneels down and follows Melchizedek in worship. Melchizedek leads Abram into worship. What do you love? What do you love more than anything else in life? If you had to pick one thing, And say, this is the last thing I'm giving up in my life. Would it be work? Would it be wealth? Would it be family? Would it be marriage? Would it be children? Would it be parents? Or would it be worship? 
If you are given all your heart's desire and you accomplish the conquest of the world as you saw it, as you wanted it, what's the first thing you would do? Would it be self-indulgent like the Home Alone kid bouncing up and down on the bed eating all the junk food? Or would you worship? Abraham sets a vision before us. An example. And the Holy Spirit in Hebrews 7 points back and says, is worship the one thing that you say, no one's taking that one from me. With my dying breath, I will go out of this life worshiping. And if I achieve everything my heart desires, the first thing I'm going to do is worship. The first and the last thing that Abraham wanted to do was worship. Now the reason that worship was so central and so essential to the life and experience of Abraham at this point is he had met a man of superlative quality. Having come back from conquering the king, Sherdelemar, on his way to meet the king, Sodom, we'll get to him in a moment, Abraham encounters this man, Melchizedek, who is described as first the the king of Salem and the priest of Most High God. We're told in verse 2 that he's not just the king of Salem, that is Jerusalem, this Canaanite city, but he is a king of righteousness. His name, Melchizedek, literally means in Hebrew, Melchi, my king, Zedek, righteousness. His name literally means my king of righteousness. His name, king of Salem, literally means king of peace. That is to say, in a world of war, in which kings are pursuing conquest, like Sherdelemar, Melchizedek was not. He was a man establishing righteousness and justice. A man who was bringing peace into the world. He was using royal power and authority, not for self-aggrandizement, but to prosper the welfare of others. He was bringing righteousness and peace into the world. Likewise, he is priest of Most High God. We're told in verse 3 that this priesthood was without father, mother, genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor of end of life. He has a priesthood that is not rooted in his inheritance. Most priests in the ancient Near East, Levi being no different, was rooted in the fact that your father, grandfather, great-grandfather were priests. And priests belonged to a family line, but not Melchizedek. He was a priest by virtue of his own person. His own royal office was exercised with such righteousness, yielding such peace, that as a person, he was worthy to be priest of the Most High God. And the Holy Spirit saves us the mystery by simply asserting in verse 3, that this is to make him a type or shadow of Christ. Melchizedek was made like the Son of God. So notice Melchizedek is is not simply some great historical figure who rose above all other historical figures. But rather, according to this verse, he was conformed to the image of Christ who would come. He was made like the Son of God so that he might be a type and shadow of Jesus. That Abraham, coming out of a world of war and of strife and of sin and of sorrow, should immediately long for worship 
as he comes into the presence of a priest king, from whom flows righteousness and peace. Surely that resonates with a few of our hearts, yes? What is it that makes us want to worship in this world? Is it not an encounter with the priest king, Jesus, from whom flows righteousness and peace? That as Jesus rules over us, giving us his righteousness, conforming our lives to his righteous standard, as Jesus rules over us, in the words of the Apostle Paul, that the peace of God would guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That his peace would govern us and guard us that we might want to worship. Beloved, who's in charge of your life? Who's running your life? And how much we worship. And how willingly we worship. And whether worship is the defining feature of how we get through life. Is an evidence of who's in charge. That when the priest king Christ is enthroned over us, it is righteousness and peace that comes from us. As we give ourselves, not to the conquest of the world like Cher de Lamar. Not to the building up of the self like all the kings of this world. But to the worship of God. That I go and I do my job in order to worship God there. To glorify and enjoy God in my home. To glorify and enjoy God in my relationships and in responsibilities, in my community, in the supermarket and on the streets. To bring peace and righteousness, which I have received from Jesus, into the lives of others. To be a conduit of grace. This is what Abraham was. This is how Melchizedek worked upon him. And how Jesus should work upon us. The Holy Spirit then presses in. And gives us two ways. Very specific and practical. For how we should live out this principle. If Jesus is in fact the priest king of righteousness and peace. Who is running our lives and working righteousness and peace in us. So that we, by worshiping him, are working peace and righteousness into this world. There are two specific things that we can do. Verse 4 and verse, I think it's 6, 7. Verse 7 says, Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. Then verse 7, Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. The argument here goes something like this. Abraham, the great father of the faithful, the possessor of the promises, was blessed by Melchizedek, and Melchizedek received his tithe. In both of these transactions, Melchizedek giving a blessing to Abraham, Melchizedek receiving a tithe from Abraham, we see the greatness of Melchizedek even over Abraham. Abraham, who by faith possessed the promises, which we are heirs to. And yet Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. Consider how great. That when Abraham had gathered all the world's wealth through warfare and conquest, 
he freely gave 10% to Melchizedek. And as an act of worship, said, this is not my wealth. This is not the world I'm looking for. This isn't the kingdom I've been dreaming of. I have a promise that is more precious to me than all the wealth of the ancient Near East that I now hold in my hands. Can you see how to apply that to your life? Can you imagine marshalling all the wealth and blessing that God has given you and saying, this isn't what my hope is. This isn't what I want. 10% freely goes to others. Now, we live in the New Covenant. It doesn't have to be 10%. Don't get hung up on the number. I'm not very good at math anyway. The point is the generous heart. In like manner, let's move away from money. Have you ever considered giving away 10% of all your time to being in worship, to being in fellowship? It's just like a 10% of your income. It's small enough that it's doable. It's big enough that it would hurt. 2.4 hours every 24. Right? I'm not good at math, so... That's a large amount, isn't it? Who has two and a half hours a day in, fa- in family and private worship? That's a lot. What if we apply it to our gifts? They're much harder to quantify. The math starts to get fuzzy. What about the talents and the skills and the experience and the wisdom and the love? What about the clothes? What about the square footage in the house? What if we took all the blessings that God has poured out upon us and we held all of the treasures and goodness from him in our hands and said, this isn't what I'm living for. I have precious promises that mean far more to me than all this. I'm going to worship God with it. I'm going to give it to the needs of one another and the needs of this world. And I'm going to worship God in the way I hold my stuff. And in the way I live my life. This is a specific way in which we worship Jesus who is our priest king. And say in him I have no need of anything else. The other one is the blessing. He blessed him who is greater blessed the lesser. That we position ourselves in a receptive manner. Ready to receive blessing from Christ. To know that he as priest king is the one doling out blessings. Not only should we orient our lives to the distribution of good. To the love and service of one another. But we should orient our lives to being receptacles of grace. In which we bow before Jesus in prayer and say I need your blessing. In which we open the Bible and listen to the word peace and blessing that he speaks to us according to Psalm 85. Friends, these are the ways that we worship Jesus in our daily lives. By holding every blessing He has given us as a gift from Him to be shared with one another. This is how the Holy Spirit would have us worship Jesus every day. But again, the argument here is not simply rooted in the duty It is given good reason for this conclusion. 
Not only did Abraham, having coming back from conquering the world, too many INGs in there, not only had Abraham in coming back from having conquered, still too many INGs. Anyway, you get the point. Abraham has come back and he has conquered the world. And not only does he submit to Melchizedek and follow him in worship, he does it because Melchizedek is the priest king of righteousness and peace. So too, we are summoned in verses 5 and 6 to consider how great our priest king is, that we should devote in a worshipful manner our time, talent, and treasure to his glory. We are told that the sons of Levi received their priesthood according to their lineage from Abraham. We are further told that they are given a commandment from Moses that gave them the right to receive tithes from the people. There was a law that supported their lineage and their claim to those tithes. But not so Melchizedek in verse 6. He whose genealogy was not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him. Melchizedek's priestly position was rooted in his righteous rule over the world, over his peace-giving reign. His priesthood was not rooted in his lineage nor in the Mosaic law. In like manner, the Holy Spirit is here arguing, our Jesus is administering peace and righteousness in us and through us and among us. Not according to the law of Moses, so don't go back to that. Not according to the lineage of the descendant of Abraham. So stop rooting faith in ethnicity. No, let's believe that all tribes and tongues and nations are one in Christ. No, let us believe that the world over owes him worship and that he is worthy of it. That Jesus is priest and king forever because he as a person is worthy of those offices. For he himself has the right to exercise those offices. This eclipse Melchizedek has over the Levitical priesthood is overshadowed yet again by Jesus overshadowing Melchizedek in verse 8. The Holy Spirit here says, mortal men receive tithes here. The Levitical priests received tithes and distributed blessings for a limited period of time. Eventually, age 50, they had to retire. Eventually, whenever in the providence of God, they had to die. In like manner, Melchizedek, as a mortal man, had to receive tithes and distribute blessings but once. Not so Jesus. Jesus is a priest forever in Melchizedek's order. He is receiving tithes there in heaven. And we bear witness that he lives. Through his resurrection and through his heavenly reign, Jesus has a right to all the worship of all humanity in all the earth for all history. He is not a priest king for a moment in Genesis 14, but type and shadow and figure. He is not a priest king for a few generations like Levi, from Abraham to the coming of the Christ. 
Rather, he is a priest king forever. Alive forever. Living in glory. Receiving worship and giving blessing. Because of this truth, because of how wonderful he is in this, we, my friends, should be aligned to him, loyal to him, loving him, and worshiping him in how we live our lives. This then is summed up in verses 9 and 10, where, in a manner of speaking, the Holy Spirit creates something of a great chain of being, a great line of logic. Even Levi, who alone among the twelve tribes was worthy to receive tithes, who through the law of Moses was sanctified, set apart, special, in order to distribute the blessing and in order to receive the tithe. Levi alone, who received tithes, paid tithes. Through Abraham, so to speak. So you get the first part of the equation, right? Levi is less than Abraham. But Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. And so it follows that Levi is a lesser priesthood than the Melchizedek priesthood. Because the Levi priesthood paid tithes through their father Abraham to Melchizedek's priesthood. But we just learned in verse 8 that Melchizedek's priesthood was overshadowed by Jesus. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. As awesome as that Melchizedek guy is, he's dead and gone, and Jesus is alive today in heaven and still priest king. He outshines Melchizedek. And that is the promise Abraham was waiting for. Because the last little piece in Genesis 14 that is so rich... So amazing to me, we, we often skip over it. We get to this little Melchizedek part, and we recognize Psalm 110, and we recognize Hebrews 7, and we get excited about the Melchizedek story, that we forget there's a little ending in Genesis 14 that the Holy Spirit in Hebrews 7 hasn't forgotten. When Abraham, with Levi still in his body, met Melchizedek, Abraham then met somebody else. The king of Sodom. And the king of Sodom said, I got a deal for you, Abraham. I know you just conquered the world. And I know that you are now Mesopotamia's empire, emperor. You take all the wealth. I'll take all the slaves. And we'll rule together. He's offering an earthly alliance. He's offering to be Abraham's vassal. And Abraham gives an extraordinary answer. He says, oh, no, 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 no. You take everything but what I owe my soldiers. Let me pay them. And once their bills are paid, I'm going home without so much. He doesn't even say a sandal. He doesn't even say a pair of sandals. He says, I'm not going home with even the laces on a pair of sandals. Because I don't want what this earth has to offer. I want a city whose maker and builder is God. I want Jesus 
glorious and gracious. I want the promise fulfilled. I have a priest king who is imagined for me in Melchizedek. And I just came from worshiping God most high with him. And when I was there, I lifted up my hand. And I swore to the God most high. Nothing was going to come between me and him. Jesus has reconciled me to God. And no other love will come before him. Is that you? Is that how you live? When you go to work tomorrow, is that you? When you go home this afternoon, is that you? That you can look into the heavens, you can look into the scriptures, and you can say, that priest king Jesus, he means so much to me that the way I'm going to relate to you could be described as worship. That I'm going to relate to you in love, in compassion, in kindness, in patience, in wisdom. Because I have a priest king whose name is Jesus. And he's enough for me. You can have the world. I have Christ. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful passage. We thank you for the rich truths of your word. We thank you for the testimony of your Holy Spirit in our hearts. To see Jesus. To rejoice in Jesus. We pray, Father, that you would awaken faith in us today, that we, like our father Abraham, would believe the promises, and that we, like him, would relinquish all our earthly ambition and surrender our lives to your command and your sovereign decree to go where you say go, to stay when you say stay, to love when you say love, and to lay down our lives and to take up our cross. We pray, Father, that you would strengthen us in the joy of Jesus, that we would hear and heed this call with thanksgiving in our hearts and your praises on our lips. Father, bless us as we go now from your presence, that this word that we have heard might change how we think, how we live, and how we love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.